Well, again, uh, we're going to go back and talk a little bit about heaven. I want to start with a, a little uh, newspaper clipping from Ann Landers. I know you all read Ann Landers. Uh, this one says, Dear Ann Landers, Our cocker spaniel, Rags, died yesterday. He was 15 years old, and everyone adored him. There are reminders of that darling pet everywhere, a feeding bowl, a rag doll, and a ball he loved to chase. Our son Terry, age nine, asked, Is Rags in heaven? Will I see him when I die? So I asked our clergyman how to respond. He said, Tell him no. Animals do not go to heaven. Except white horses. I'm adding that. I believe... Ann Landers, uh, the question comes, I, I believe this is an insensitive response to a nine-year-old. Can you give me a better one? Signed, San Juan. Dear San Juan, I checked with several authorities. And the best reply came from Andrew McKenna, who is not a theologian, but is vice chairman of the board of directors of Notre Dame University. Which qualifies him for something, I don't know. Andrew said, Tell the boy that heaven is anything you want it to be. Assure him that he will see everyone he wants to see in heaven, including his pets. Interesting view. Tell him heaven is anything you want it to be. It's not, by the way, it is exactly what God has made it to be. We're talking about heaven. Last time we talked about where is it, and we said it is up. We talked about what is it like, and we described it as a, a center of blazing light uh, which shines through the four-square city of the New Jerusalem, and we went into some of that detail. And we are going to move on to another question this morning. This is a question that you should want to know the answer to, because the question is, what will we be like in heaven? What will we be like? Now, the Bible teaches that we will experience perfection of soul and body. That's the bottom line. That when we get to heaven, we will be perfect in soul and perfect in body. I want to talk a little bit about our soul before we talk about our body, so you'll get a feeling for what the Bible says. In Hebrews 12:24, there's a very important statement. It says in heaven, there are the spirits or the souls. Those terms are used interchangeably. The spirits of just men made perfect. So the first thing that is true about our soul in heaven is going to be that it will be perfect. The perfection of the soul. That's the inner person. Now when the Lord began his recreating work in you, the work of salvation... He began by working on your inner man. He put a new life principle inside of you. He really hasn't done any work on your outer, has he? Your salvation didn't affect your body directly. It may affect what you do with your body, but it didn't have any effect on your body. Your body, your physical body is no different than the physical body of an unbeliever, right? Nothing has happened to it yet. It doesn't have any supernatural capabilities. It doesn't have any heavenly realities that exist within it that suit you for living in eternity. Nothing has happened to your body, but something has happened to your soul. There has been some transformation on the inside of you. 
In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. So on the inside, you're new. You have been created in Christ Jesus. You are a partaker of the divine nature, Peter says. You have all things that pertain to life and godliness. In your inner man, you love God and you love the law of God and you desire to obey God. There are holy longings, the Puritans used to say. There are godly aspirations. There is the hungering after righteousness. Something has changed on the inside of you. Now, not all of your inside has changed because you still have evil desires. You still have pride. Uh, you still have lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes to go along with the pride of life. You still have a response mechanism by which you can be tempted and fall into sin. So not all of the inside of you has changed. You are still the possessor of fallen human nature. You still are susceptible to evil thinking, which is an inside reality. You are susceptible to evil attitudes and evil motives. But something has changed. What has changed? The dominion of sin has been broken. Sin is no longer master. It is present, but it is not the sovereign. Not only that, your soul does not only do evil continually. It now has a capacity to do right things, to think right thoughts, and to have right desires. You have a new power, you have a new heart, you have a new spirit, the Holy Spirit lives within you, so there, there is the beginning of a new inside. But it isn't fully complete yet. You could say the seed of eternal perfection was planted within you, but it hasn't yet come to full bloom. Furthermore, that newness that is in you is still wrapped up in your fallen flesh. And so even it is debilitated and can't fully express its impulses. That's Romans 6 and 7. Paul says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. So I see two principles working in me. The principle of my inner man, which loves the law of God and wants to do right. And the principle of my flesh, which does not love the law of God and wants to do wrong. And the two are in constant conflict. So I, I wait the change in my body. And I am in the process of seeing the inner person, the soul, or the spirit being transformed. Now, when you die, and it is inevitable, of course, and everybody will go through the same experience if you die before the Lord Jesus gets here. When you die, your body goes into the grave. And your soul or your spirit, that's your inner person, you're just two parts, inner person, outer person. Some people want to split the soul and spirit and, and see different functions of those two, but they're really used interchangeably in Scripture, and they can't be really split and given specific definitions that are in some way in contrast with each other. Your inner person, when you die, goes immediately to heaven. Philippians 1.23 says that it is far better to depart and be with Christ. So when you leave here, you depart, you're with Christ. Immediately, There's no waiting place. There's no soul sleep. There's no time of uh, repose. Some would advocate. You immediately leave here. You're with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's no intermediate state. When you die, your soul goes immediately to be with Christ. So your soul is in heaven. Now, when your soul gets to heaven, what is it like? 
It's got to be different than it is here because here we still have the capacity for wrong lusts and attitudes and desires and we can still be tempted and fall into sin. So what is going to be the difference? There's got to be a difference. What will that difference be? Well, simply stated, it is this. Your soul will be perfectly free from all evil. Perfectly free from all evil. And I chose those words very carefully. It will be free from all evil in a perfect condition. Absolute perfection. There will be no taint of sin. You will not have the capacity for that in any way, shape, or form. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 27... We read a very important statement. It says, In heaven there is nothing unclean, there is no one who practices abomination or lying that ever will enter into that place. There is nothing unclean in heaven. Absolutely nothing. In chapter uh, 22 of Revelation, verse 14, it says, Those who come into heaven have washed their robes. And outside of heaven are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral people, the murderers, the idolaters, and everybody who loves and practices lying. In other words, in heaven there is no uncleanness, there is no defilement, there is nothing imperfect, there is only perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, and the absence of any evil. There shall in no case, the Bible says, enter into heaven anything that defiles. No sin, no suffering, no sorrow, no pain, no doubt, no fear of God's displeasure, no temptation by Satan, the world, the flesh, no persecution, no abuse, no division, no hate, no quarrel, no disappointment, no anger, no effort. Nothing that is in any sense wrong will ever be there. Now, you know what that means? There will be no more prayer because there's nothing to pray for. There will be no more fasting because there's nothing to be concerned and sorrowful about. There will be no more repentance because there's nothing to repent from. There will be no more confession of sin. There's no sin to confess. There will be no weeping. There's nothing to cry about. There will be no more watchfulness. There's nothing to watch out for. We will be totally out of the reach of temptation. There will be no more teaching, there will be no more preaching, and some of us will wonder what in the world we're going to do up there. There will be no more learning, there won't be a thing to learn, you'll know everything already. There will be no evangelism, there will be nobody to evangelize, there will be no witnessing, there will be nobody to witness to. In heaven there will be perfect pleasure. You think you know pleasure in this life, you don't even have a conception of what pleasure is. You have built into your physical body certain pleasure sensations, certain nerves that that cause you pleasure. That's on a very human level. It's very mundane. It's very limited compared to the infinite pleasure which will be yours at all times, every single moment, every fraction of a moment throughout all of eternity. Perfect pleasure. That, of course, is indicated in a number of places in Scripture, not the least of which is Psalm 16, verse 11. In thy presence there are pleasures forevermore. There will also be perfect knowledge. You will know everything. You will know as you are known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says you'll know everybody and you'll know everything about everybody. And everything you know about everybody will be perfect. So all your information will be perfect knowledge about perfect people. You will know everything. There will be nothing to learn. No information to acquire. 
And since uh, we learn in this life that the greatest drive that people have, and I was fascinated to read this, the only drive in human experience that exceeds the sex drive, they tell us, is the drive or the desire to know. Isn't that amazing? People have this insatiable desire to know, to learn. That's why any tiny little juicy piece of gossip is such a fantastic thing to have, because you can collect a crowd so easily. People want to know all kinds of things. You'll have perfect knowledge. According to Luke 16:25, you'll have perfect comfort. You'll never be uncomfortable. You'll never have a split second of discomfort. Imagine that. You'll never have a funny little twinge in your stomach. You'll never have a minor or major headache. Uh, you'll never have some kind of a robe that doesn't fit right and scratches you somewhere. You'll never have a moment, a moment of discomfort. And you'll have perfect love. Everybody who lives in heaven will love you perfectly, and you'll love all of them perfectly. And you can only imagine what experiencing perfect love would be like. You know what it is to fall in love. Well, imagine that multiplied an infinite number of times and, and living at the, the maximum capacity of a redeemed person to love perfectly every single person and the thrill of loving everyone equally and having everyone love you equally as well. You'll love the way Jesus loved. There's something else you're going to experience in heaven, and maybe this sums it all up. If I could sum up heaven in one word, you could talk about perfect pleasure and perfect knowledge. You could talk about perfect comfort, perfect love. But the one word that best expresses heaven is the simple little word, joy. Joy. You will be literally out of your mind with happiness. You will have a joy that is beyond anything you can even imagine. Let me show you this. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. In this life, we have some joy, but our joy is always mitigated somehow. It is always hindered. There's always sin. There's always sorrow. There's always grief. There's always unfulfillment. There's always trouble, problems, issues. It's just that way in life. And so our joy uh, is short, <laughs> brief, um, Limited, But in heaven, notice what we learn from the words of Jesus himself about heaven. In verse 14 of Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about a man who goes on a journey, calls his slaves, and gives his possessions to them. Gives five talents to one, two to another, and each one according to his own ability. And he went on his journey and gave the last one one talent. The guy who had five did something with him. The guy who had two did something with him. The guy who had one hit it in the ground, did nothing with it. By the way, this, this really, as the reformers used to call it, is gospel privilege. Gospel privilege. This was the opportunity to come to the knowledge of God through Christ. And the first two made something of their privilege. The last one did nothing with it. And so you'll notice when the master comes back to look and see what they did with their opportunity to come to know Christ. Verse 21. To the first guy, he says, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Watch this. Enter into the what? The joy of your Lord or your master. The second one, he says, verse 23, you've been good and faithful, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master or your Lord. Now, what he is saying here is, I promise you in heaven that you will have many things over which you are responsible. The joy of heaven will be yours. He promises him some kind of responsibility, some kind of leadership, some kind of rulership, some kind of stewardship in heaven, and he will enter into the joy of his Lord. 
That's really what the Lord promises anyone who takes gospel privilege, the privilege to hear the gospel, personalizes it, receives Christ, is faithful with that responsibility and opportunity that someday there will be a responsibility in heaven which will bring you great joy. However, the other guy wasted his privilege, and you can look down in verse 30 and see that worthless slave was cast into outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you want a simple contrast between heaven and hell, hell is where there is no joy but always pain and agony. Heaven is where there is only joy and never pain and agony. The dominant characteristic of heaven is unbounded, unending, unmixed joy. We know only limited joy. We know only joy mingled with sorrow in this world. But there, there is unmixed, unmingled, unbounded, and unending joy. That is why whenever you look in the book of Revelation and you see some kind of a scene in heaven, the scene in heaven is always a scene of immense joy. There is always rejoicing and praising. In Revelation chapter 7, it takes us to the throne of God, and it says the people who are there hunger no more, thirst no more, the sun never beats on them anymore, there's never any heat there. There's another element about heaven. It's completely air-conditioned. Perfect temperature. Really an incredible thing to realize. Unmixed, unmingled joy. And that joy in Revelation 22.5, it says, is forever and ever. Hell is exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Hell is a place where there is the complete absence of joy. One of the stupid things that Mark Twain said in his life was a, a quip that he made to someone when he was mocking Christianity. He said this, you take heaven, I'd rather go to Bermuda. Pretty foolish. Because Bermuda is not the other alternative. You take heaven, I'll go to Bermuda. Unfortunately, that's not the option. Hell is the opposite of heaven. What is hell? It is unmixed pain. It is unbounded pain. It is unlimited pain. It is unending pain. That is hell. So what happens to the soul when it goes to heaven? It is perfected. It is perfected into a condition of endless joy. But it doesn't end there. We were never designed to be disembodied, happy spirits. We were never designed to just be ethereal spirit beings floating around in a state of bliss. We were never designed to be disembodied. We were designed by God to be an inner man and an outer man. And so the body has to be brought together with this redeemed and glorified soul. So the Bible says that when you die, your spirit, your soul goes to be with Christ and you become this joyful, eternal spirit. But that someday your body is going to be joined with that spirit, right? We read, don't we, in 1 Thessalonians 4, that the bodies of those Christians that have died are going to come out of the grave and be joined together with their redeemed spirits. Look at 1 Thessalonians, just very briefly, just to capture this passage and its thought. It says that when the Lord returns in the rapture, this is most interesting. It says in verse 14, when Christ comes back, 
God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. At the rapture, when Jesus comes, all those who have fallen asleep, that's the Christian word for dying, all those who have already died, their spirits are in heaven, are going to come back with him. So when Jesus comes in the rapture, those spirits of believers that are with him, and that would be all because there hasn't been a bodily resurrection yet. The Old Testament saints' bodies are still in the grave. The New Testament Christians' bodies are still in the grave. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. So all these spirits, all these souls that have been transformed, that are living in permanent joy, are going to come with him. And then what's going to happen? He's going to bring them down. Verse 15 says, Then you who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord are not going to precede those that have fallen asleep. What does that mean? Well, when the rapture comes, there will be some living Christians. They're not going to be the first ones in the action. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What does that mean? Out of the graves are going to come bodies to connect up with the souls that have already been in heaven with the Lord in their perfected state. The graves are going to yield up all these bodies. They're going to join these disembodied spirits. And we're going to be redeemed soul, redeemed body. That's the promise. That's the future for us. That's what Paul said in Romans 8. We, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Our soul will be glorified in a perfect state, but it awaits the time of resurrection. It must, you see, the soul must have a vehicle to express itself, and we've been created to express ourselves through a body. So we're going to get a body. In Philippians chapter 3, you remember that it says in verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the rapture. And when he comes, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So you want to know what our body's like? It's going to be like the body of his glory. What's that? The body he had after he what? Rose from the dead. Now that brings the question, what's your heavenly body going to be like? Paul asked that question, 1 Corinthians 15, 35. He said, how are the dead raised and what kind of body are they going to have? What's your body going to be like? Well, you're going to be excited to hear about this. I'm going to tell you what your heavenly body will be like. Now, some people have mocked this. In fact, one writer looks back on some of the mockery and writes an interesting paragraph. He says, the limitation of our present knowledge makes it almost impossible to comprehend the resurrection of a body. We raise questions about flesh that is buried in a grave and reduced to the elements or burned to ashes or dissolved in the sea. Can it be possible that these scattered elements will be reassembled with the same molecular structure as at the hour of death? Some see this as absolutely ridiculous. They picture a body in the grave dissolving in the action of the rain and the heat of the sun and in time fertilizing the grass above. On that grass, a cow is grazing. The cow eats the grass that is fertilized by the decomposed body. The cow produces milk, which is consumed at the breakfast table and nourishes a whole generation. The problem in the resurrection, they say, is how is God going to reassemble the right molecules? Well, that might be a problem with somebody. That's absolutely ridiculous. It reveals a complete misunderstanding of the Bible comes from thinking only in terms of the natural and the physical with no understanding of the spiritual. 
from a spiritual standpoint, we're going to have a glorified body. The Lord is going to put it together, create it instantaneously at the rapture. He'll create it so fast it's inexplicable. Do you realize when, when Jesus comes, it says that the people who live on the earth will be changed into that glorified body in the twinkling of an eye, the time it takes for light to flash off a pupil of an eye? He's going to give them that body, and we're going to get it that fast. It'll come into existence so fast that the time frame in which it comes into existence is not measurable. A glorified body. Indestructible. Paul calls it a house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5. A house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. What's it going to be like? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is incredible. You need to know this because this is you in the future. 1 Corinthians 15.35 Paul said here, asking the question because somebody else asked it, How are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? That's a natural question. What's it going to be like? I'm curious. Am I going to look like I look now or are we all going to be 33-year-olds who look exactly like Jesus? What are we going to be like? He says, you fool. What a dumb question. That which you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Isn't that fascinating? He says, look, he says, isn't what you plant in the ground different than what you get coming out of the ground? I mean, you know enough to know that. You, you take a little tiny seed and you put it in the ground... And what you get is immensely different from that little seed, right? In size, in shape. Don't expect that the body that went into the grave is going to be anything like what comes out of there. It's going to be greatly different. It's ridiculous for you to assume that what goes in is what's going to come out and somehow God's going to run around the globe and reassemble all the right molecules to put it together exactly the way it was. No, you plant a seed and a whole different looking thing comes out. And that's exactly what he says here. There was a seed in terms of the body that went into the grave, but what comes out is going to be very, very different. Verse 38 says, God's going to give it a body just like he wants. To every one of the seeds, it has a body of its own. And then he says, everything is different. All flesh is not the same flesh. And the amino acids make that contribution. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. You're going to have a body, the glory of which is going to be very different from what you have here. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Stars differ from star and glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Adam gave you one thing. Christ is going to give you something else. Your first body was earthly. Your second one is going to be heavenly. Verse 49. You have borne the image of the earthly or earthy. You will also bear the image of the heavenly. And you know how it's going to be different? 
I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Therefore, I'm telling you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a twinkling of an eye. It's going to be different. It's going to be the same. Say, well, uh, okay, all you're telling me is it's going to be different. How different? Well, the best illustration is the resurrection body of Jesus. Because 1 John 3, 2 says, when we see him, we'll be like him, for we see him as he is. Now, what about the resurrection body of Jesus? Absolutely astounding body. After his resurrection, he appeared to the disciples with the door shut. Remember that? How did he get in there? Went through the wall. That's the first thing we learn about our resurrection body. There is no physical object that can limit it. It'll walk through a wall just like Jesus did. Do you know something else? That when Jesus came to be with his disciples, he sat down and ate with them? That's interesting. That's interesting. That glorified body could eat. And maybe that's one of the reasons why the Lord has planted along the river that flows out of the throne of the city in heaven those trees for the refreshment of the citizens. We'll even eat in glory. We won't have the normal physical world bodily functions, but we'll enjoy all the wondrous blessedness and joy and exhilaration of taste. Every sense you have, your, your sight will be perfect. In fact, you'll be able, like the song says, on a clear day to see forever, and there'll only be clear days. And you'll be able to hear every sound that is made in heaven. And you'll be able to smell every aroma that exists in the eternal condition. And your senses will be heightened to joy and experiencing every single thing that God can provide. Jesus moved through walls. Jesus talked. Jesus appeared. Jesus disappeared. Jesus flew to heaven in a cloud. And you'll be able to fly around too. No wonder Paul said we groan in this tent, longing to have that heavenly body. You'll have a mind full of the pure light of God's truth. You'll have a heart that is undiluted love, joy, and peace. You'll have a zeal for God that is never wavering. You'll have emotion in perfect balance with the unmixed joy of heaven. You'll have a body just like Christ after he rose from the grave. Everything in perfection. Every joy that is imaginable and unimaginable to you will be yours every split second throughout all eternity. It's really mind-boggling. Now, let me tell you something. If you find your joy in this world, and if you have no anticipation of heaven, you've got a spiritual problem. If you find your joy and your contentment and your satisfaction in this life, you are idolizing a passing world. You are loving a world that is going to be burned up. You are contradicting the goal of God for your life. You are seeking what can never be found in this world. And consequently, by setting up unfulfilled expectations, you are aggravating your misery. I really believe, and I think this can be seen all in our culture. I believe we have, even in Christianity, people are so bent on making this world as perfectly comfortable as they can, that all they do is ultimately aggravate their misery. But the reason you have this unending escalation of people with counseling problems is because their focus is not on heaven, but it is on earth. 
And when you focus on this life and you try to extract and suck out of everything here some kind of perfect fulfillment, all you will do is exacerbate the misery. You're better off to recognize that your problem is you never were designed to be satisfied with this life. And there will never be any relationship that will ultimately satisfy you. And there never will be any experience that will bring you ultimate joy. Because you were made for heaven. And not to wish to die and go there in a reasonable way is disloyalty to God. Is to depreciate his heaven. Is coldness of love toward him is blindness to the realities of what he's prepared, is to demonstrate that you have very little weariness with sin, and you ought to have a lot of weariness with sin. Not to wish to go to heaven is insensitivity to the glories of heaven and sensitivity to the worthlessness of earth's vanities. If you don't groan for heaven, something wrong with you. A prisoner longs to be free. A sick man longs to be healthy. A hungry man desires to be fed. A thirsty man desires water. A farmer desires harvest. A worker desires a payday. A runner desires a victory. And why wouldn't a Christian desire heaven? When John thought about heaven and finished writing the Revelation, he said, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Don't leave me here any longer. People always ask, all right, that's who we are when we get to heaven, but what are we going to do relationally in heaven? Is there going to be any relationships? Well, first of all, we're going to be related to the angels. I won't go into that. We're going to have fellowship with the angels. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 says we'll fellowship with angels. Secondly, we're going to enter into their joy. They're going to be rejoicing. We're going to be rejoicing. Thirdly, we're going to praise and worship God along with the angels. We'll join the angelic chorus. Fourthly, the angels are going to serve us. That's Hebrews 1.14. Get that. They're going to serve us. Throughout all of eternity in heaven, the angels are going to serve the saints. I know we think of ourselves as lower than the angels. We are. Hebrews says, for a little time, we've been made lower than the angels. When we get to heaven, the angels are going to spend eternity ministering to us. Serving us. By the way, they're doing that now. Angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to the saints. We're going to reign over the angels. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 3 says we will rule or govern or judge the angels. So we're going to have a wonderful relationship with angels. We'll fellowship with them, rejoice with them, praise God, worship with them. They will serve us and we will reign over them under the rule of Jesus Christ. We will be commanding the angels uh, as they serve the living God. Now a second question. What about our relation to family? People always say, are we going to be married in heaven? Sorry, no marriage. We say, will we experience love? Sure, love from everybody, everywhere, all the time, in absolute perfection. We'll have perfect relationships to everyone, but there will not be any marriage in heaven. Let me show you just two scriptures, and we'll kind of tie this up. These are important. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 29, Paul's talking in this whole chapter about marriage. He says, I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. 
Those who weep as though they didn't weep. Those who rejoice as though they didn't rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't possess. And those who use the world as though they didn't make full use of it. In other words, hold lightly to everything that is worldly. This is a long time ago. This is a few thousand years ago he's writing this. And he's saying we're so near the end even now that you ought to hold very lightly to things in this world. Oh, there's a place for, for marriage. There's a place for uh, weeping and rejoicing. There's a place for buying things. There's a place for using the things that are in this world, not the evil things, but just the, the common things of life. But do it very lightly. Hold it very lightly. Why? Very important phrase, one of the most important phrases that you'll find. The end of verse 31. For the form of this world is passing away. In heaven, there won't be any marriage, the implication. In heaven, there won't be those times of weeping and rejoicing as people bounce back and forth in the emotional traumas of life. There won't be anything to buy. There won't be anything to own. There won't be anything to use. It's all passing away. The form is passing away. The schema, the scheme, the fashion, the manner of life. It means the way we do things here. It is not permanent. It is passing away. Marriage is one of those things that is passing away. Look at Matthew chapter 22. This speaks to the same issue. This is a great confrontation between Jesus and the leaders. Sadducees, who said there's no resurrection... They were the skeptics, the liberals, came to Jesus, and this is what they said. They give him this amazing little story, sort of a riddle. They said, verse 24, Matthew 22, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now, this was, uh, this was the Old Testament law that if a brother died, left his wife a widow... And he had a younger brother, or even an older brother, who wasn't married, of course. Then he would marry that woman and take his brother's place so that he could raise up godly children. Verse 25, now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died. And having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second, second guy marries her, he dies. Third guy marries her, he dies. All the way down to the seventh guy. And last of all, the woman died. What a blessing. I mean, if I'm son number four, I'm saying, I don't care what the law is. I'm not marrying that woman. Three brothers married her. They're all dead. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Anybody after number two was a fool, to be honest with you. Anyway, they asked the question, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. Oh, they thought they had asked him the unanswerable riddle. He said, uh, your problem is you don't understand the scripture or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, some people have drawn some stupid conclusions from this. Some people have concluded from this that, that angels are sort of like heavenly mules, sort of sexless, you know. That's not the point. All he's saying here is, by the way, anytime an angel took on a human form, it was always a man. No angel ever appeared in a female form. But that's consistent with God's design for, for men to have leadership. But nonetheless, he, he says that isn't the idea. The idea here is that in the resurrection, there's no marriage, there's no giving in marriage, just like the angels. The angels never marry because the angels never procreate. You understand that? Do you know that all the holy angels, all the angels, holy and fallen now, were all created at the very same time? Angels don't have little angels. Two angels don't get together, fall in love, and produce a little angel. 
It's not how it is. All the angels were created at the same time in eternity. And then later some of them fell. But they were all created at the same time. They don't procreate. And so he says in heaven it's going to be like that. There's no procreation. By the way, this is one of the lies of Mormonism. This is one of the things that has attracted people to the Mormon church throughout the years. The Mormons promise you that if you're a faithful Mormon in this life, someday you're going to get your own planet, you're going to have your own heavenly brothel of of these heavenly celestial wives, and you're going to spend all eternity engaging in celestial sex. That's in Mormonism. One of their major things. That you're going to get your own planet in outer space and spend forever engaging in celestial sex with these heavenly beings. The Bible says, not so. You see, the assumption is, in this life, that there couldn't be anything more fun or more exhilarating than sex. And so we can't imagine going to heaven and not having those things that we feel uh, when we engage in sexual activity. Those impulses that we feel when we're attracted to someone physically. What we don't realize is that heaven will give us thrills far beyond that all the time, every split second in the unmixed, unbounded joy that is heaven. He says there won't be any marriage there. You say, okay, well, when I get there, then I won't be the husband of my wife. No, she won't be my wife. Well, that's too bad because we've had such a wonderful time. You mean this, we won't be engaged up there if we go when we're engaged? If we're, if we're in love and we die, we won't still be? No, in the sense that this person will be special. Everybody will be loving you and you'll be loving everyone with an unbounded capacity to love. So your fulfillment, what little bit of feeling you feel here when you feel love, couldn't be compared with what you'll feel for everyone up there and what everyone will feel toward you. You say, well, will we still be ourselves? Or will we be, you know, androids, clones, zombies going around like this, you know, staring blankly into the the face of God? No, we'll be ourselves. We'll be ourselves. You can go through the Old Testament and the New Testament and you'll find that Abraham's in heaven and Moses in heaven, Isaac in heaven, Jacob is mentioned as being there. Now you will remember, won't you, that, uh, that when uh, the transfiguration came, Moses and Elijah showed up and who were they? They weren't two androids, it was Moses and Elijah. And they knew it. No, we'll be who we are. We'll be a diverse company of individual people. I'll be John MacArthur and you'll be whoever you are, only we'll be perfect. Perfect. Some cases, of course, for some of us, that's almost impossible to conceive that we could be perfect. So you can go to heaven and you'll talk to Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Samuel, Moses, Joshua, Esther, Elijah, Elisha, David. Now you say, how will I know them? Will they look like they're painted in my Sunday school quarterly when I'm in the junior department? No, they won't. You say, how will I know them? You'll know them because you'll know everything. You'll know everything. You'll not only know them, you'll know everything about them. You can meet Paul and Barnabas and John. You'll find out finally what Paul looks like, at least in his glorified state. You can meet um, Martin Luther. You can sit down with John Calvin, who won't know any more about anything than you know, which will be nice. (laughs) You can sit down with Charles Spurgeon. You can sit down with John Wesley. Um, You can meet all the great saints of all the ages. You can see every person that ever met Jesus Christ throughout all of human history. They'll all be there. It's going to be limitless opportunity for fellowship, the sweetest uh, imaginable fellowship with perfect people, no problems to resolve. You'll never have to talk anything over. You'll never have to discuss anything. You'll just sit there and exude love, joy, bliss, peace, and incredible experience. A wonderful place. Unimaginable. 
And yet that's the promise. What's the upshot of all of this? Well, first of all, for a Christian, I ought to be eager to go there. I ought to be anxious to be there. It sounds and should sound better than anything I can conceive of in this world. And what it means is I don't get too embroiled in this life. I don't concern myself with too much in this world because I'm just hanging around here until the time when I can get out. What about a non-Christian? And I want you to listen carefully. What about a non-Christian? I'm under the assumption in my heart that there's somebody in a student body here who's, who's really never come to know Jesus Christ. You're here, but you've never really committed your life to Christ. Let me tell you what you're doing. All you're doing now is through your sensory abilities, sensory feelings of your body, your nerve endings, your chemical capacity to feel enjoyment through your taste buds, your auditory nerves, smell, your sexual capacities. You're, you're, you're sucking a little bit of sweetness here and there into your body, which you have to realize that your body is going to be sent into hell and all those capacities to feel and smell and see and hear are going to become tracks on which the wrath of Almighty God is projected into the innermost part of your eternal being. And you will weep and you'll feel pain and you will wail because your sensitivity and your feelings will all absorb the horrors of eternal hell. Your body will feel every impulse of the anger of Almighty God forever and ever and ever. And all I can say is I appeal to you to make a wise choice and choose heaven. Father, we thank you.